Hey everybody, it is a snowy afternoon here in Denver, Colorado, and you're listening to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder and pal, Ed Condon. Ed, is it a snowy afternoon in undisclosed East Coast location? Uh, no. No, it's it's... It's quite cold, but it's not its not snowy in any way. How are you, J.D.? That's the real question on my mind. How are you feeling? Because See, this is why... Oh, gosh. This is why. So I, I took one sick day. I took a sick day on Monday because I was sick. I had what could be described as acute gastroenteritis. And, you get sick um, a lot. I worry about you. Is that true? You had... Um, you had the Ronas quite badly back in 20... I had the Ronas. Yes, I had the Ronas. 20? I had, yes, I had the Ronas uh, two calendar years ago. That is true. I yeah. did have the virus two calendar years ago. And now I, have I think this. you took at least an afternoon off when you had the Rona. <laughs> now I have the, no, no, I was quite indisposed. But now I have this. So you're right. I suppose if that is get sick a lot. Yeah, I get sick a lot. I got sick then in 2020 and I get sick now. So that, yes, I get yeah, sick I'm, a lot. I'm not calling you a delicate flower, but I mean, you know. No, no, I understand. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I just, uh, a little bit of, a little bit of a gastroenteritol um, virus seems to have gone through our house, passed through our house, as it were. I understood and, it passed uh, through like a water slide. Uh, well, I, uh, I I don't care to talk in detail about such things, but it was not uh, pretty for anybody. But I am fine now. Uh, I'm a little bit, though, uh, bummed because I was uh, supposed to go. It's, it's, it's a snowstorm here in Denver, Colorado, as I've now said a few times. And I was supposed to go um, this evening. You're listening to this podcast on, uh, uh, we're recording this, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast. We are recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon, and I had a flight to go to sunny California this evening. Well, Northern California, but nevertheless warm and sort of the, uh, the coastal climate of San Francisco um, this evening for, uh, for an event that it turns out was actually canceled like a week and a half ago, but I didn't know because there, were, there was a mix-up where the... Um, organizers had an email address that I no longer use to term an old job. And so they were like, they had emailed everyone associated with the event to tell them it was canceled, but I didn't know that. And so I was wondering like, why haven't I heard from these guys? So I called them yesterday basically just to say like, hey, just wondering why I haven't heard from you about some logistics and, you know, what do I do when I get to the place and these kinds of things. And they're like, oh yeah, it's 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 canceled, which was again, not their fault at all, but it was a, it was a comedy of errors, I suppose. Um, and I, I was a, it was a symposium that I was to go to and I was to give a, a lecture at a, a symposium at which I was to give a, a lecture, at least to talk. And I pre- prepared the thing. And so I spent a, a decent part of this week, including my sick day, kind of preparing a little, a little thing that I'm not going to, not going to give. You were going to talk about Gaudium et Spes, right? I was going to talk about Gaudium et Spes. The, That's the uh, other the, um, constitution. <laughs> in many ways to come out Whatever of the second vatican well no i mean everyone knows the Mungentium because it's it's a dogmatic constitution and it mm-hmm. contains some beautiful um writing it, you know it's very it's a very quotable text mm-hmm. um we all know and a sort of a evergreen interest in topicality is sacrosanctum concilium on the, the constitution on sacred liturgy exactly and gaudium is whoa, whoa, whoa. there's another constitution of the second vatican sure there's uh, there's the constitution of the word of god yeah, Dei Verbum on Divine yeah, Revelation, which is lovely, and you know, it's it it you know, Dei Verbum. You can you can draw a line from that to other things like um, Fetus et Ratio and Veritatis Splendor and some of the great encyclicals of the post conciliar era. 
or, or if you will, Divino Aflante Spear to... Oh, wait, no, that's from Pius XII. That's before that's, uh, David. Yes. Never mind. I take it back. Well, I mean, Pius XII was an incredible liberal when it came to the Word of God. I mean, he he was into the sort of vernacular translation of the scriptures being widely available. I mean, he, he really was a mad progressive, um, <laughs> which is probably why his cause of canonization is stalled. Has stalled, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, you've got Because, the, I mean, he was a 20th century pope, so it's really sort of astounding that he has not yet been canonized. It really is. I go. I, I can't fathom. Um but so, okay, you've got those three, but then, then you have Gaudium and Spes sort of lurking in the background, which is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And JD, I have read Gaudium et Spes uh, in its entirety once or twice, although I admit not. Really? It's a long, it's, yeah. it's a long thing. I will it's admit like not recently, words, you know? not in, yeah. not even in recent years have I done this, but I have in the course of undergraduate and graduate studies from time to time sat down and read the thing. Um, obviously, it makes an appearance in the second long readings in the Office of Readings, if you if you do the breviary every day. So you get bits of it here and there. What shows up? 22? Uh, I, I don't remember the references. I mean, it, you know... 22 is the sort of great Christological... Very possibly. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I really like the second long readings in the Office of Readings because obviously it gives you the writings of various saints if it's a saint's day, people you might not otherwise come across... There's often some, you know, some really great stuff um, from the doctors of the church. Obviously, the the real problem is sometimes you get stuck with Augustine's um, sermon on the shepherds, which seems to go on for four or five weeks and is an exercise in overlaboring a metaphor. Um, so no one looks forward to that. But I, I will be honest with you, I often don't take as much away from it as I as I could because you're flying. Uh, well, no, I was going to say, because, you know, it's quite early in the morning when I'm reading this and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I may not have had enough caffeine yet to, to fully it the desire itself to have taken something away. That is. Yeah. Well, my wife and I will sometimes play a game at the end of the day, which is, can either one of us remember what the gospel of the day was <laughs> from, from when we read it in the morning? I died. died. No idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, but anyway, so what I was going to say is God in space is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern yes, world yes. and i don't know that i could successfully parse the phrase pastoral constitution the two seem um as concepts in the way they are often used in the church the words pastoral and the word constitution don't make for obvious um well let's take constitution to mean in the way that the second vatican council uses it document which is important to us and uh, and promulgated with the full force and authority of an ecumenical council. And promulgated with the full force and authority of, of an ecumenical council. But so are the decrees of the ecumenical council. Sure, sure, sure. So on and so forth. So, um, but let's take let's take. I think the only way you can maybe take constitution in this way is to sort of take it. And and I, I have no doubt that uh, I have no doubt that someone will correct me on this. But insofar as it is helpful for me to think about it, I think it is probably helpful in that way to think about constitutions as documents which we think are important or the tent poles of the whole thing. Well, I was going to say they must be, I don't want to apply chop logic here, but they must be constitutive of something. Yeah, you, one, one would think so, right? So, one would um, think. So, right. So, um, yes, I think that would be quite so, as I say, the sort of tent poles of, which are sort of holding up the whole thing and which are outlining um, and identifying the sort of major themes um, and pronouncements, which will actually be expounded upon in the other documents of the Second Vatican Council in various ways. Sure. So in, in your time that you spent with Gaudium et Spes to prepare to give a, a lengthy um, presentation on it, um, did you did you come away with any new insights? 
Well, yeah, I did. And I tell you for why. Um, here is the thing. So w- what I was sort of tasked to reflect upon, and I, I think I'm actually to give this lecture. So this event was uh, canceled as, as a consequence of the COVIDs. And uh, and it is, um, as I'm told, uh, to be kind of rescheduled in, in, in the exact same form. Sure. You know, one year from right. Oh, sure. So, yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, definitely. should that be the case? Uh, should that be the case? Uh, I suppose I'll give the same lecture again. So so my thinking on this has time to mature. But what I was actually asked to sort of reflect upon is like, um, where does the church sort of stand in the receptivity of Gaudium et Spes? How's the church, has the church received Gaudium et Spes? Um, and at the same time, could would Gaudium et Spes be written um, today? Ah, uh-huh. interesting. Um, so, so um, what makes it a pastoral constitution is I think what the fathers of the church are trying, or the fathers of the council are trying to say there is, um, we have um, in the other constitutions of the council and in the decrees which go along with that, we have um, articulated a, a theology of the church in a way which is comprehensible and intelligible to modern man, which is part of the the project of the Second Vatican Council. Found ways to articulate the nature and identity and mission of the church. And now we will ruminate to some extent on um, the way in which that mission might be lived in modern times. But as an apostolic, so, so a certain way, the, these are some of the sort of principles of application of the of these things which we have just done. Um, but as an apostolic constitution, I think you get a little bit more uh, room to, um, to be critical of the thing because it's not intending... Um, to be um, a dogmatic constitution, right? Um, it, you know, it, in which it is articulating the dogmatic. Are you are you suggesting this is the the source and origin of the spirit of Vatican II? Well, I'll get there. I, yes, oh, I'm, okay. I'm going to get there. But there's more room to be critical of the thing. Wait, first when of you all. say you're going to get there, how long are you going to? I didn't mean to open well, the can. I mean, I, me, nobody here wants to hear I your a speech. Long to do, I prepared I, a well, long to do. You know, do. save it for the people who paid for it, man. I, <laughs> nobody, nobody turned up for this podcast saying, "Oh no, we'd like JD to give us a lecture on Gaudium et Spes." I just, I was looking for a drive-by you hot take. You just wanted the I, highlight. You just wanted the highlights. I wanted you to. I wanted to create a space for you to say something mildly provocative and. And potentially insightful as a drive-by, and now I feel like I've—you're actually going to say something thoughtful and intelligent at great length, and no, that was no, not no, my no, intention. No. Gaudium et Spes is often criticized for having um, a sort of cheerily optimistic view of the uh, the modern technological progress and what could be described as sort of modern social progress. And um, Uh, and got that call wrong, didn't we? Well, Ratzinger criticized it, right? Because he said, and and actually Ratzinger and Ronner criticized it together at the same time because they they said effectively the problem with Gaudium et Spes is it's too French. And what they meant was it's too Tehardi and it it sort of conflates human progress along technocratic lines with uh, with with sort of spiritual progress, and it smokes um, galois and refuses to go to work after lunch. And... Right, <laughs> this is exactly right. Yeah, um, but um, but they said, but but it, in a certain way, it's also not very French because they said it doesn't have um, a strong enough sense of of sin. Um, and uh, well, that's and, definitely French. Well, and Ratzinger said what it needs is a is a healthy. I mean, Ratzinger actually said at a certain point what it needs is a, a healthy dose of, dose of Luther. Whoa, 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 whoa! Ratzinger had said what he meant. I think is Augustine, right? But um, or you know, kind of the, the Lutheran Augustinian tradition. But what he means is a genuine awareness of the sinfulness of man and the sinful disposition of habits of man, because um, because it is uh, because it's often criticized as something which is extremely sort of uh, optimistic about the potential of the, of technological progress to better sort of to to to, to contribute to human flourishing. And at that time, you can kind of understand why that's happening because 
the, you know, as Tracy Rowland, the theologian, says, what, what you have to understand about Gaudium et Spes is it was written right after we put a dog into space. And, um, and there's something to that. And you also have to understand that it was written right at a time when uh, a lot of people thought that we had effectively solved world hunger because of advances in agriculture, kind of um, lots of things were happening in Mexico with, with extraordinary wheat yields. And just after the promulgation of Gaudium et Spes would be extraordinary things happening in, in India and Pakistan with, with wheat production. And you also had um, the onset of containerization, which um, uh, made sort of shipping a lot easier and a lot cheaper, which made us think that things were going to be very much gooder for very much longer. What we didn't realize is like what Francis actually talks about in, in uh, Laudato Si about kind of extractive, the way in which containerization itself or globalization have, has contributed to extractive capitalism. We had not yet had the sexual revolution. And so there was not yet a recognition in which the way that actually the technological progress that we were dealing with would also ravage the family, right? And, and radically. Yes, we, we thought our, technology was going to usher in a new world of communion and communication right. and interpersonal relationship and a drawing together of the human family when what it did really did was it created a super highway for the ultra efficient delivery of pornography. <laughs> this is exactly right. Such that every human person in the Western world has a pornography machine in his phone, you know, which also has on it um, Wordle, um, but it's effectively a, a, a pornography machine, which also delivers our, our show. Um, but um, uh, I don't know what <laughs> I don't know why I correlated those things. I but don't the, know why you did either. I... But the point is there was an extreme optimism about these things, and th that's often criticized. Um, and oftentimes conversation about Gaudium et Spes stops at that criticism. Um, obviously, there is a way in which Gaudium et Spes talked about technology that did not sort of reconcile with um, – talked about human technological nature. progress, which did not reconcile with, with human nature. Um but Does, okay, so in, in this conversation, I, it always amazes me because I've always thought that the, the premise that technological progress um, is somehow a net positive seems to me not just to fly in the face of immediate human experience, but it's unbiblical. I mean, the first great <laughs> technological leap forward was the Tower of Babel, and how did that go? Sure, 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 sure. But do, do you uh, know what I mean? Like, I, I've always do. found it an instructive and often misinterpreted passage, which is, you know, the sort of third graders reading of it is, oh, they wanted to build a tower to God and God did, you know, God felt threatened by them trying to get up to the, you know, the sky palace where he lived. Um, but what it says in Genesis is that, well, if they do this, there will be nothing they can't and won't turn their efforts towards. And as far as I'm concerned, it's, you know, what he's basically saying is, well, if they're going to do this, it's a short step until they start trying to, you know, do human cloning and genetic engineering, which is exactly what we're doing now. Like the, I, I find it instructive that as soon as we have once again, assuming that the you want to take the sort of Babel narrative and the confusing of human language as um, a, meta, a relevant metaphor, as soon as we have reconstituted a global human community, our technological advances have been proceeding hand over fist and they have almost universally been turned to what I would consider to be perverted ends. Well, what's ba the Tower of Babel, as we say in America, is supposed to Babel, which is, I think, an English version of the Tower of Babel. The uh, see, this is the kind of the kind of language confusion that we have now. The the Tower of Babel is what Genesis eleven. I you're you're the one who was raised Protestant. I trust your um, <laughs> I trust your ability to bookmark chapter numbers far better than mine. Is it is it the scriptures are an oral tradition in my upbringing? Is it antediluvian? I don't think it is. No, I don't either. Actually, I think it, I think it's Genesis eleven, and then, but I think the flood comes before Babel, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the flood comes before Babel, right? And so actually, it seems to me that there's a technological tension going on in Genesis, right? Because um, if you wanted to be super sort of about it, you could actually say that when God delivered man from the floodwaters, he delivered them through the technology of of, um, of ancient Near Eastern shipbuilding. Um, and at the same time, you rightly point out that the technological development of Babel, as it were, uh, you know, causes this great sort of rift in human destruction. So there is there is a genuine sort of tension here, and it's the tension that comes from the fall, right? We have the we have creative capacity because we're made in the image of God. Um, we have the capacity to to, to make and and fashion and till and subdue and and have dominion over, and we can use that for good or for ill. Um, we can either, we can even use that sort of according to the direction of the Lord or according to our own designs. Right, but because of right. original sin, our knee jerk first instinct is going to be to use it badly. Sure, 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 sure. Yes, and that's actually the, that's the coming back to God against best. That's the tension. But I think like this is the whole problem with sort of being kind of entirely ludicrous. Is that um, there is a tension with our creative capacities between our capacity to create things which destroy ourselves and the capacity to create things which contribute to human flourishing and help to sustain us and those kinds of things. Because in the same century in which we created the pornography machines in which we carry around in our pocket, we're having extraordinary medicine advances in medical technology that allow people to live better and more comfortable lives. And we have had extraordinary agricultural, you know, advances and, and communications advances, if those things are good. And yeah, but for every extraordinary that. agricultural advance, J.D., there's some lunatic who's trying to grow meat in a lab. <laughs> no, can you believe it? I can, can because you... people are terrible. Mm -hmm. That's true. This is true. Right. So Ratzinger's point was Condon was not sufficiently contributed in the development of Gaudium et Spes, and therefore people are terrible, didn't sufficiently make it in. Well, as part of the Synod and Synodality, I want to just state for any bishop who would like, I am willing to turn up and take a few swings at Gaudium et Spes and see if we can tune it up a little bit and <laughs> get it ready for the 21st century. I, it's just an open offer. Gosh, I would really like you, I'd really, really like there to be a meme. If, I feel like if we say this on the podcast, there's a decent chance it will happen. I would really like there to be a meme in which people are terrible as written in the Synod on Synodality font against one of the Synod on Synodality backgrounds. That, you know, that would be as, my contribution, contribution to the Synod on Synodality. <laughs> I feel like this can happen. Just, I feel like, I feel like this can, this can. If you, you believe know, it, kind of, JD, all things yeah, are possible with like, God. I feel like that, um, I feel like that, uh, prosperity gospel guy, like I just, I want to speak it into being now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sing a new so, meme into being, JD. Do I, uh, do I get to finish my thing? Yeah, yeah go on. Yeah. So... That's an easy criticism. You want to dunk on Gaudium and Spes, you do it all day because they really do think like, um, oh, yeah, now that we can talk to each other on the phone, we're all going to love each other more. Uh, you know, and we're not exactly sure what's happening in French Indochina right now, but it'll work out. Um, it, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's to say nothing of the mountains of Central Asia. Everything's going to be fine there. Um, or the breadbasket plains of Eastern Europe, for that matter. You get the point. Um, and it's not that everything was you know, completely rosy in the early 1960s for any, you know, number of populations anywhere. But there was this sort of optimism. And that's a criticism that Benedict makes and and, and Ronner himself makes and these kinds of things. Um, but when that's sort of the stopping point for the conversation about Gaudium et Spes, what's missed is that um, there's this incredibly sort of Christological theme running through the whole thing, which is that humanity's, uh, humanity's identity is only intelligible in Christ. And that, you know, it, it's really quite clear that there's no understanding the, the nature or meaning or dignity of the human person apart from Christ. And so there's all this, there, there's a lot of criticism because the sort of second half of the 
of the thing, you know, which is like the sort of what you should do about marriage, what you should do about this, what you should do about this. It's kind of like the church should be in dialogue with, and Benedict keeps saying like, there's no frame of reference for what that dialogue is. Is it dialogue as equals or is it proclamation of the gospel? Um, and uh, and if you just sort of take it as it stands without having read the rest of the, of the Second Vatican Council, you're like, yeah, I, I don't get this. And that's where the, sec- the spirit of Vatican II comes from. It's people, people use it to sort of take this amorphous sense of dialogue to mean whatever. But if you've read Lumen Gentium, which identifies the nature of the church, um, you understand that there's this sort of central theme in which the church is talked about as having a prophetic identity and then as having this sacramental identity, as being the thing which, by virtue of sort of um, the, the mystery of the cross, sanctifies the world. So this dialogue is, um, is, a, is, a, is a charismatic dialogue. And, and when that's missed, you, you, you open, Gaudium et Spes, open to this um, theologically liberal sort of idea that it, it, um, it is what we wish it to be, and this sort of Gnostic idea that we've talked about before, about the sort of spirit of Vatican II, is to be, uh, you know, friends with everyone. But, but really, the, the point that it's making is that these various facets of human technology, which are advancing very quickly, are only their end is only intelligible if it's sanctified by the sacrament of salvation, which is the church. This, this is a thoughtful and interesting train of thought, J.D. I, I, would, so, I would listen to the full delivery of your thing. You pretty thing. much got it. Um, I, I mean, I'd listen to it on one and a half speed. But, yes, you know, so, well, I, as people may well be now. But this is not the, by the way, this is the substance, guys. This is not the banter. This is the substance. But could there be, you know, so that second question, which I find really fascinating, I'm curious what you think. Would we sort of have another Gaudium? Would Gaudium et Spes, has the church received Gaudium et Spes? There's an argument that what John Paul II was trying to do for his whole papacy was sort of take the back half of Gaudium et Spes one at a time. And, uh, and that's what he was doing with, um, you know, the theology of the body. And that's what he's doing with World Youth Day. And that's what he's doing with all these things um but has the church sort of received that it, it seems to me no um that there have been there has been so much sort of inter-nicene argument or, or sort of inter uh, intermural argument over the past 40 years that the notion that the primary mission of the church right now is uh, is a, a charismatic proclamation which sort of sanctifies and christifies various aspects of the world including the family is not for the most part, where we are. It's a bold not even that does not, not for the good. most part. It's absolutely not where we are. It's so much not where that we are that we don't even understand that the church's prophetic and charismatic witness should define its internal conversations in the synod and synodality. That's what, that's what Gaudium et Spes is it's saying, actually. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole sort of section on how to build a culture, and it's basically um, uh, how to invite various aspects of, of, of what are thought of a culture into... Um, again, if you want to say to dialogue with Christ, that's meaningless unless you understand that what the Second Vatican Council is about is that the Church's dialogue is uh, it has a has a charismatic pro- an element of charismatic proclamation at its center. I I love it. You should write a book. Oh no, I'm never. I don't think I'm going to do that. Okay. Well, if you're Sorry. not going to write a book, let's move on. Okay, so that's what I was going to talk about there, but I ain't there. I'm here. So what we talk about here is the Sacred Military Order of Malta, and a lot has happened over the past week in the Sacred Military Order of Malta, and I would like for you uh, to have the opportunity to talk about, talk about it. Because um, last week we talked about, you, we kind of talked about this constitutional situation of the Sacred Military Order of Malta, and there have been some developments there, and I, I think it would be great if you could bring us up to speed. But one question that a lot of people have asked me is, uh, what's the backstory? Which I know you wrote kind of an analysis on the backstory, and it's extremely complicated. But also, how does money figure into this? A lot of people are curious about how money figures into all of this. Thing. Oh gosh, um, 
It's ironic. All I wanted to do last week was talk about the Order of Malta, and I was annoyed that we didn't do it out of the gate, and now you're throwing me the Order of Malta out of the gate, and I don't know that I want to talk about it all that much. We did discuss in our outline of the show. I know, um, but that very rarely has any actual bearing <laughs> on what we talk about in the show. That's true enough. Anyway, um, okay, so, I mean, in terms of an update on where we are with the situation of the Order of Malta, I, I honestly don't want to... I want to leave this slightly open-ended because the process is open-ended. I've been, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. I have been given reason to believe that we can expect some developments in the next 24 hours. Um, Because what happened this week was effectively, there is this constitutional committee, which is jointly made up of Cardinal Silvano Tomasi, who's the Pope's special envoy to the Order of Malta, um, some canon law experts, um, on the sort of Vatican side of the table who've helped draw up this draft constitution for the Order of Malta, Father Carolanda, um, Monsignor Brian Firm, guys like that, you know, ser- serious canonical minds. Oh, um, Firm's on the thing? Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you've got on one side of the table these guys, and then the other side of the table is supposed to be uh, representatives from the Order of Malta itself. And, you know, we've talked in the past about the sort of the the first crack that the Vatican team had at this draft constitution, which has some problems, um, key amongst them being ways in which it did not recognize or even expressly contradicted the concept of the order's diplomatic and sovereignty. Um, And and there seemed, you know, Cardinal Tomasi has said that it was never the Vatican's intention. It's not the Holy Father's intention. It's not his intention to touch the sovereignty of the order in any way. And people seem to want to say, we're going to fix that. But um, that do- even that doesn't quite get them to the table, or at least it hasn't so far. This week was supposed to be a two-day, I say was, it, it, this week had a two-day meeting to discuss this draft and to sort of outline the key things that need to be changed right away um, and, and sort of move move the chains a little further before putting the thing out for a formal consultation, um, you know, amongst the order's leadership and membership and stuff like that. Uh, but a funny thing happened, which was the person who's supposed to be chairing the committee and leading the order of Malta's input into this is the grand chancellor of the order, Albrecht von Buselager, who last week said he wasn't going to do it anymore. Um, and he nominated to the lieutenant of the Grand Master of the Order, because there isn't currently a Grand Master, so the guy who's technically running the shop right now is the lieutenant to the Grand Master. Um, he said, you should appoint the president of our Lebanese Association because, you know, he's he's got great experience of the Order's, you know, practical work in places like the Middle East. You know, he's he, everybody likes him. He'd be great. Send him instead of me. Um, and so the lieutenant of the Grand Master said, yep, fine appointed him, duly nominated him delegate for this thing. And Cardinal Tomasi, at least according to this president of the Lebanese Association, basically refused to seat him at the meeting, wouldn't invite him. Um, and instead, Cardinal Tomasi seems to have brought in the president of the Italian Association of the Order, which is odd because basically you're saying, well, I'm not going to recognize the legally delegated representative of a sovereign entity in a meeting about discussing the new constitution for that sovereign entity. And instead I'm going to pick my own person to rep their side of the table, which I mean, it it looks very weird. Now that was how things sort of went day one of this meeting where basically the, the official order of multi delegation didn't take part. Um, I don't know what happened in day two. I'm waiting to find out. 
and it, I, I've heard there has been movement. That's all I've heard so far. What would that mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, it could mean anything from Cardinal Tomasi back down and decided to seat this guy and they had a lovely and constructive chat and everything's back on track. Or it could mean that the lieutenant to the Grand Master's written a letter to the Order's leadership saying, you know, we're all being held hostage in the Grand Magistrate and Cardinal Tomasi is acting as a viceroy over. I, I don't know. It could mean anything. I, so I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this slightly open in terms of where we are now because I don't know exactly where we are right now. And I think there will be some interesting developments by the end of Friday of this week. So what is the significance of, the, of all of this? Ed? How, if, you're, if you listened last week with rapt attention, but you are not an expert on SMOM, Sort of what what is the what is the significance of what ha- has happened? Here? Well, the significance of what's happened is mostly that um, we are we are sort of seeing um, a live vivisection of what a, an extraterritorial sovereign entity in um, international law looks like. You know, what happens if you just strap it to the table and cut it open and pull out its constituent parts and try and rearrange them, uh-huh. you know, can it survive the process? Yeah. Um, and that's really what I think is most fascinating about this, at least for me. But there's another set of kind of listeners who say, you know, you have, you two have talked a lot about sovereignty. And last week I talked a lot about the Bahamas, the Bahamas, but there's another set of listeners that says, Hey, what's happening sort of in the reasons why this is happening and what's happening inside the order is as important as this sovereignty thing, which you guys keep banging on about. Right. And, and so that, I mean, and that's the key thing to, to underline here is that this, this crisis didn't sort of happen overnight. This has been a slow roll since 2017. Um, and really the, the genesis of the Vatican's involvement in the constitutional reform of the order of Malta um, isn't because the Pope woke up one day and said, no, nah, I, I think I fancy getting involved in this. Um, it's because the order invited the Vatican in in the first place, um, albeit in a, in a in an entirely separate and equally complicated set of circumstances that ended up in the abdication of the Grand Master. But um, the the important thing to take away from it all is uh, the reason that the Vatican is now having to run the table for the order's constitutional reform is basically the order was incapable of doing it itself. That there is a very very deep divide in the order right. about what its future shape and governance should look like and broadly speaking that disagreement centers on the the role of the first degree knights the professed knights the ones who make religious vows of poverty chastity and obedience um you know every they are they're the core of the order they are what give it its you know they are the primary anchor of its identity as a catholic religious order um and so what to do Everyone agrees in the order that the the role of these first class knights, the fras as they're called, um, needs to be you know sort of given a reform. It's been a, been a little while. The previous sort of reforming iterations were kind of one foot in, one foot out, not not a whole job. And you know we're at a point where the order needs to see this to be sort of holistically reviewed. Everyone agrees with that. But which direction should you go? There's no agreement about. In fact, the the two sort of opposing lines of argument. Um, are, are in absolutely opposite directions. There's a, there's a camp broadly identified with the Order's German Association and Albrecht von Buselager, uh, who say that, well, look, the Fraus should be the sort of spiritual core of the Order, and they should have, you know, a, a sort of constitutional monarchical role at the head of the Order, kind he's of like... He's them. Pardon? Is he, he sounds like he's windsoring them. 
Yes, basically. Which is to say, um, there could be a perspective that would say he's setting them up to be figurehead leaders without any sort of real power. Well, so I, I think there's certainly that criticism. Um, I think a the most neutral presentation of it I could give would be to say that um, the idea is the order, the, the, the phrase would continue to occupy the place of places of precedence in the order, step back from the day-to-day governance and operations, at least a step back from where they are now, not step back totally, but step back from where they are now, Hmm. delegate more to other positions in the order to run things on a day-to-day basis, and that the the fraws would would instead turn their uh, immediate attention and efforts and sort of daily concern to the spiritual life of the order. Now, there is a lot of criticism of this reforming agenda, and there has been for some time. And this is not unlike people who say, you know, because the church is not, because parishes are not well administered, the pastor should be the spiritual head of the thing, but there really ought to be a system by which um, some layperson with an MBA is in charge of the money. And the pushback would be, well, yeah, but governance is a function of uh, of leadership, um, you know, and, and, and of orders in that case, but of pastoral leadership. And uh, that would be sort of the pushback to that. And I just presume the fault lines sort of fall out in the same way here. It, it's that, he who does, he who controls, you know, personnel and purse is in, is actually in charge. Yes, the, and, and I mean I think that is absolutely the case. And, and and I mean to the to the point of the sort of if you like, and I'm I'm calling it this because it's how it's commonly referred to within the order. I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it's the best way to refer to it but again for ease of reference the sort of german proposal for reform within the order which would have this sort of stepped back role from governance and daily control for the fraz um they do make the point that there are only 38 fraz left and this this is not the kind of occasion these are religious brothers but this is not the kind of occasion to which one can encounter at the vocations fair at his driving catholic university and then go on a come and see weekend and then sort of become a postulant and then come home and tell mom and dad that he has a vocation to the sovereign military order of Malta and he's going to sell everything and get a sword. I mean, that's not how it works. No, it's not how it works at all. Um, you will first, for a start, you're not getting into any level of the order unless you're invited. It's not like you don't just sort of, you know, fill in a form and send off three cereal box tops and you get your right. cape in the mail. It's it, it, That's not how this works. So there are only 38 fraws left. Um, the reason I bring that up is because it's not easy to replenish those ranks. Indeed. The um, order is set up in a certain way for certain, because of its own history and charism and spirituality. It's not like they would just say, well, let's do away with that. It's set up in a certain char- way because of its or- charism and history and spirituality by which sort of professed religious vocations are not easily come by. Indeed. And um, the the number of frauds that they have left is not high. Um, and the average age is quite high as well. I think fewer than... I think fewer than 20 of them are under 70. Do these guys live com- a common life with one another? No. Them? and Okay, so we'll come on to that. Because I really... I have been picturing them as sort of like at the center of this international thing with all this sovereignty is like a bunch of old guys in a in a basic, you know, classic sort of religious house common room loudly watching a soccer game or something. Okay. But I, not- I, common life is an interesting question and we'll come on to that. Okay. Um, so anyway, th- this is the sort of one reforming agenda that has been present in the order. The, there's another side which basically says, no, we actually need to go the other way. We need to make sure the fraws are even more 
at the center of our work mm-hmm. and our governance and our spiritual life because you can't separate any of the three of those things that the order of Malta is what it is because it is a thing that is sovereign and it does and it you know it has passports and embassies and hospitals and you know field medical interventions in war zones and it does all of this because it is a religious order first and that to try and separate or parse off or you know any part of that work from the control and the centrality of the fraz is basically to cut the fruit off from the roots and you can't do that and so this this seems to be the 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 reforming mentality that has most heavily influenced cardinal tomasi's draft for the new constitution for the order because sovereignty to one side um the draft that i read would suggest that the role of the fras running the whole show and everything isn't just retained it's expanded in fact one of the criticisms i've heard of the tomasi draft is that you're creating more jobs and reserving more jobs to the fras than there are fras to fill in the order and that's a problem which is not an unreasonable criticism by any stretch of the imagination um but also sort of what's in the mix in all of this uh is the fras themselves are aware that the spirituality of their class of knights need their spiritual life needs renewal needs reform and this is something which as a catholic religious order is squarely under papal authority there's no there's no question of their sovereignty when it comes to the organization of their religious life. And this is something that's needed to reform because you said, is there common life? And the answer is simply no. There isn't common life for the frauds because there's only 38 of them and they're spread yes. all over the world. Yes. So there have been, there has been creative conversations within the order about the idea of, you know, can you have sort of virtual common life where, um, you know, professed knights are... No, gr- I, virtual I, common life stupid. We're not, hey... I I don't care. Even though I like zooming with you once an hour, you know, once a week for an hour. For, for yeah, no. So anyway, I, I, I'm not here to pass judgment on any of these agendas. I no, don't. I have I, no dog in this fight. Life I just find it fascinating. Yeah, it's a phrase my, though, which should offend our ordinary. My my point is that there is little lived experience of common life for many of the remaining frauds now. How to bring that in is a is a consideration. Does there need to be sort of more seasonal common life? Do they need to be, you know, in one place at one time for, you know, a periods period of time, time throughout the year? They have a beautiful estate in the Roman Hills. The, J.D., they have many beautiful estates oh, in the Italian Peninsula. <laughs> they, they are not hurting for lovely, picturesque, bucolic settings. Um, I'm going to tell you why, if, if, you, if I may, I, I want to tell you why I find this more interesting than I realized I would. Um, <laughs> it, as it were, um, all of this is very fine and, and, and all that. But one of the reasons why I find this super interesting now, having heard some of that, is that um, p- taking aside the uh, Roman Hill estates and the passports and the Pope's intervention and the drama and, you know, all of the... All of the all things of those, that make it interesting. Taking aside all the Dan Brown elements, this is an extremely common story in the life of the church right now mm-hmm. a dying religious institute has a lot of apostolates and um it is not clear whether to turn those apostolates over to a sort of lay board of sort of associates who have some share in the spirituality of the thing or whether to hold on to it and there's a lot of tension about that this is and now you're going to say they're not dying and i get it but an aging religious institute um but this is a this is the story of American religious institutes of women which own hospitals and which have had a hard time figuring out how to properly sort of hand them over or whether to hand them over. This is not 
in uncon- or or the story in a certain way. There are other elements of it, but the story in a, in a certain way of Catholic universities in America. Although even the sort of pa- there's even a parallel kind of with Land O'Lakes, right? Because mm-hmm. the sort of story of Catholic universities in America is like there are people who think they should re- re- should have remained the very concrete, uh, concretely identified and governed apostolates of the religious institutes which began them, and then other people which said, no, 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 the religious institute should be here to to make to give it a, a, a flavor of Catholic tradition, but they should be governed by people who really know what they're doing in the... And you do that, you get Georgetown. Tradition. Yeah, right. Yeah, so th- this is not... Take all that away, and this is just something which the church is grappling with in a certain way as she transitions from um, an institution with um, uh, lots of both professed religious and institutionalized apostolates to something which looks different. Yes. It, 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 I mean, okay, first of all... I didn't know this angle of this. Yes. And and so here's... Uh, first of all, you're right. I do have to say, no, the order is not dying because if I don't say that, I'll get five phone calls. As I soon know, as no, no, no. It's not dying. You it's not dying. In fact... Well, no, but so this is one of the... You look this, great. This is... <laughs> This is one of the bones of contention within the order is the there has been um, a years long block on new professions for the first degree knights. So you've had for a number of years, basically during this constitutional reform process, they've put a freeze on. Oh, um, so new people haven't been able to profess. Exactly. They only just recently had three. Who were so Cardinal have- Tomasi gave a special dispensation for these three guys to profess, but I, I everyone agrees that there's a line of people ready to profess and like come through. Now and the numbers they, diverge. Do they effectively, do they do they have an do they have an novitiate? Of the they court? have an novitiate. Yes. Is, is there training in combat and arms? No, they, 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 the military is a misnomer. Military does I not know. mean I arms just would bearing. Like it in a little this case. bit if there was a little bit of arms training during their. But they, these people have undergone a novitiate. And now are unable to profess because of all this complicated... Correct. Whatever. There is a novitiate in the order. There is spiritual direction. Oh, yeah. There's all of this is provided for in their constitution, which is really why I like the Order of Malta is because I was saying... I said this to a night the other day um, about, you know, talking about their leadership crisis of 2017 and everything. He said, why do you know so much about this? And I said, well, because I've read and nerded out on your constitutional charter and your and, and the Rodian Code, their separate code of canon law for the order and everything. He said, why would you do that? I said... Because I'm a canon lawyer, and this is like this is my comic book. Like this is fun. Like it has. I, if you've never read if, as a canon lawyer, if you read the the knights, yeah, I'd love code to with I'd like the way the the court system is erected and the prosecutor's office. It's like this is great. I'm I'm going to be honest with you. For part of the time that you were talking, I have been skimming a 15 page guideline to their protocol uh, protocol on when they can wear certain kinds of lapel pins and crosses and with glee i mean with genuine delight so i get it this is a this is the they have so many freaking protocols on lapel pins i could write a paper on it and i love it right and i mean i'm looking at one article 200 disqualification to hear cases of more than one level alternate yeah, I judges yes, oh, the, i mean the seat of the magisterial puts like it for canon law nor this thing this story has everything uh-huh. um so mm-hmm. that is why i and anyway so but uh, to back to my original point which is no the order is not dying according to the knights themselves they would say that they have this backlog of professed waiting 
And, you know, some people say there's five people ready. Some people say there's 15. Man, that would be frustrating. It, it is frustrating. And, of course, everyone blames each other for who's holding it up. Some people say, well, it's the Grand Magistry who stopped having new professions and the Fraws themselves stopped having new professions because they didn't want to be bringing new people in during the constitutional reform process when they needed to be reviewing their own ideas for life and all this stuff. And other people say, no, it's actually the Vatican who stopped us from allowing to admit new. So anyway, that's part of the whole mess. But the bottom line of all of this is the the future role of the professed knights at the head of and at the heart of the order's governance and works as well as spiritual life is something that the knights themselves don't agree on. Now, in it, as a religious order, as a Catholic religious order, it's totally appropriate for Rome to roll its sleeves up and get involved in that and sure. say, well, we're going to sort this out. The problem is... <laughs> It's totally not okay from an inter- from the perspective of international law for one sovereign entity to do this to another, especially if, and again, I'm clear the ball may have moved by the time this podcast comes out, but at least as we're speaking right now, if you have one sovereign entity drawing up a constitution for another sovereign entity and refusing to seat the legally designated delegates to that process from that sovereign entity that looks a lot like annexation so one, one of the things that i've been just thinking about is as we talk about that the constitutions of ordinary religious institutes i think that we talk about this as a religious institute but it's sui generis it is not oh it's not it, as it, if we can say it's this thing it is, is sui generis sui with these extra things it's sui generis it is in its own category because it has a thousand year old history that begins in a different place than conventional religious institutes today, even even ancient Benedictine monastery, you know, mon- monasteries were of a different type at, even at that time. So it's sui generis because it has perdured with certain interruptions for for all of that time, and so um, and the church allows for certain kind of sui generis things, and so it's okay that it is. But um, but what I was wondering is when the church erects a religious approves an institute of consecrated life, I, I was trying to remember does the church um approve its constitutions or um or or erect them it's probably we probably well it depends on if it's diocesan or pontifical right yeah, surely uh, we probably have to go to the law here um i don't know if you want to look this up with me um if you're going to the law i am too okay um and usually when we go to the law we end up having to cut out a little bit of our page flipping time the erection of religious institutes yeah it happens by the approval of their statutes, right? Right, because they always start sort of ad experimentum, ad hoc, unincorporated, unaffiliated, and they drop their own thing, and then they have to be submitted for so approval. So the point is that it's, it is not common in religious life at any point that the church goes to a religious institute and says, here's your new statutes, unless there's a real crisis. Now, the church says may say, you need to revise your statutes, or this part of your statutes is not okay, or whatever, um, but it, it is not the sort of ordinary – now, this thing is sui generis, but even with that, it's not the ordinary sort of condition of religious of religious institutes, institutes of consecrated life, that the church would um, – that the sort of basic statutory structure of the thing would not be devised by the thing and then presented for approbatio by the church. Yes. By the hierarchical constitution of the church. Correct. So even in the context of religious life, this if is the very Jesuits weird. were having – if the Jesuits or the, or, or the captains or whatever – we're having a um, a thing, you know, a general chapter to revise their constitutions. It would be, in a certain way, no less 
weird if it was like, okay, we're going to have this meeting, but no Jesuits or captains or whatever are going to come. I mean, it's just not how we do. Well, not no Jesuits or captains are going to come, but we're not going to invite the superior general or the person the superior general has picked. We're going to pick a provincial of our choice. We're going to pick a provincial of our choice, right. Now, you may say, okay, well, maybe they probably in the revision of the constitutions of the legion, the Holy See did it in a very heavy-handed way, but they had to, right? I mean, the, the... well, ironically, this is the same, legion. many of the same legal players. I mean, Gerlanda was the one who reformed right? the legionaries, yeah. But reforming the legionaries and reforming the sacred military of Malta is not the same no. thing because they don't come from the same play. I mean, and they don't have the same, the same problem. They don't have the same problems, precisely. So if the process is the same, I can understand why even taking apart all the sui generis elements, you would say there, feel, there seems to be a certain kind of injustice here. Whether the Pope has the sort of power to do it or not, I can understand those who would say there seems to be a certain kind of injustice here because that's just not how we do religious reform right. in religious life. Well, and, and again, I want to be clear. The, the extent to which the dysfunction within the order and the failure of the knights themselves to be able to agree on what they want for their own future is so bad that when Buzelager wrote his letter last week saying, I'm stepping down as chairman of the steering committee and all this, and I'm nominating Marwan over here, and he's going to go in my place because if the lieutenant to the grandmaster agrees. Also, I mean, he made it clear. It wasn't just that he had lost confidence in the process and found the draft constitution as come up with by Tomasi and Gerlanda and et cetera, unacceptable, although he said all those things. But he also made it very clear that he didn't have the confidence of a large section of the order's membership. That I mean, he said, there there are people in the order who have accused me of trying to secularize the order and turn it into an NGO. And, I mean, he, for the purposes of clarity, he very vociferously denies all of that and says, you know, I would never want any such thing. The, the order's Catholic identity is the only thing that makes it what it is. We can't, you know. But the, the divisions within the order are sufficiently entrenched that even as they're fighting off or trying to fight off the Vatican with one hand with regards to their sovereignty, he's turning around and saying, well, I got to step back, not just because I can't fight off the Vatican here, but because you people don't, over here don't trust me. So, I mean, that's how bad it is. And I, I'm really interested. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated in the story from, uh, from a legal perspective, but also just as a, as a drama at this point, I'm fascinated to see what happens next because I mean, barring a sort of miracle of conciliation, I don't see any obvious way out of this for anyone, because the catch-22 is, if Cardinal Tomasi says, look, the order's leadership effectively don't enjoy the full confidence of their members, they aren't willing to deal with me in good faith as they must with regards to the reform of the religious aspects of the order, um, and they are going to continue to be sort of obstreperous, I have to press ahead and dissolve the government council and the sovereign council and convoke an extraordinary chapter general to get this thing through. But the problem is if he does that, it doesn't matter what the draft of the constitution says about the sovereignty of the order. The order is not sovereign because a foreign power has come in and dissolved the government of the order and rejected the legitimacy of its legal officers and forced through a new constitution. So the constitution itself can say the order is sovereign, the order is sovereign, the order is sovereign. It doesn't matter. It's, it's been proven not to be. So that's problem one. If the order's leadership, like the Grand Chancellor, turn around and say, well, this process cannot possibly continue without the involvement of the legally delegated and designated representatives of the order and any move to do this without the 
proper legal government of the order's involvement and okay is illegitimate in international law. They have a perfectly coherent argument in international law there, but the problem is they are then resisting the spiritual authority of the Holy See over its religious aspect, which puts its communion with Rome not the Rome, they're all in Rome, I should say Rome, puts its communion with the Holy See at risk and threatens its character as a Catholic religious institution, which everyone agrees is a sine qua non for the order to exist in the first place. So there's really no, I mean, this is a, are we allowed to say Mexican standoff? Is that, is that still an acceptable term? I don't even know the genesis of that phrase. So it's from all the good Westerns where, you know, everyone's standing in a circle with a gun pointed at the guy. The Spider-Man meme. Oh yeah. That only it's a, it's like the good, bad and the ugly. Yeah, like the Spider-Man meme. Yeah, there's three guys all with guns pointed at each other. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's where we are with the order between the sort of ones who want to see um, sort of, if you like, more fra reform, the ones who want to see reform to improve. You know, The pro and anti-fra reformers are there with guns pointed at each other. And in the middle of it is the Vatican with its guns. Like, there's, there is no way out of this for any party that gets them anywhere close to what they want and doesn't completely break the order beyond repair, sure. barring, as I said, a miracle of conciliation. And maybe they will all see that. Which wouldn't that be quite cool? It'd be awesome to see. I mean, oh, if they quite- pull this out of the fire, I will. It will be fantastic. And again, I'm it, like just as a human drama at this point. I want this to work for everyone. Yeah, yeah, would be. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, but even if and, it doesn't and- work, as I'm sorry, as a lawyer. This it's is fascinating. Yeah. And, and moving back again, um, just to kind of take – it does portend – just to sort of make this point again, uh, the, all of these issues do portend um, uh, a sort of looming set of questions that are now – even now being meted out about sort of what happens with large property holding, apostolate holding, religious institutions whose membership is declining. Yeah. In this case, not that they're dying, but whose membership is declining. And, uh, and, and there, are all, there are a number of sort of – creative solutions that are being employed for that here in the United States, some of which will stand the test of time and some of which will absolutely not. Well, and with the order, it gets even more complicated because, for example, the order's relations, the order has a lot of property in a lot of different places. You know, it it has accumulated over a millennia considerable bequests. Mm -hmm. Um, But, for example, the... (laughs) It, at least as I've understood, it, it doesn't have an Italian. So you have to understand the strata of the orders, organized, the priories, the subpriories, the national associations, whatever. Um, there is no Italian priory. There's an right. Italian national association, um, but because of the way in which, and again, this goes back to it's a question of international law and bilateral diplomatic relations. Um, the a lot of the property of the sort of quote unquote Italian association of the order is actually legally recognize the property of the order centrally at the grand magistrate because they're the ones who have the concordat with the italian state mm-hmm. yeah and i mean it, it's it's very very interesting it gets very very complicated because you're not just talking about you know well you have to re- restructure our 501c3 it's like no 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 no. you're talking about in some cases 200 year old treaties between the order and a sovereign state like you don't unpick or reform this in a hurry. And there's every chance that if you try to, the whole thing collapses. I wanted to ask some questions about the money, but um, we're going to have to do that another day. Uh, so, um, Ed, did you read the Pope's address to the Roman Rotor today? I have not. That is on my sort of reward for getting through the working day thing well, to read. You dodged a bullet because I was going to talk about it, but we are very close to running out of time. 
So um, I was going to try to engage you in conversation about it, but was I'll it good? About it I haven't read it. I... Yeah, it was. It was really. It was very interesting. Of course, the the Pope makes an annual address to the members of the Roman Rota. The sort of no one in my none of the canon lawyers in my phone exploded with rage this morning. So I thought, no, okay, nothing crazy has happened. It must just be a good address. Um, the Pope talked about synodality for a while. Oh. This is again to the sort of Vatican's marriage appellate court. Uh, I do not like when people call it the Supreme Court of the Church because that's the Apostolic Signatura. Well, um, mm, mm, mm. no, <laughs> uh, technically, the Roman Rota is the Supreme Appellate Court of Ordinary Instance. The yes, the but can Supreme. I make, can I make? Can I make an appeal? Uh, if I have an issue in the Rota, can I make an appeal to the Signatura on procedural grounds? Only on procedural grounds. It's a the the signature is a court of cassation is appeal. You can really only the only, I think the only line of appeal from the rota to the signature is if you have an exception against one of the judges. It, basically, if you're alleging judicial oh, malpractice. Okay, so let's say this. The, the, so let's say this. The Supreme Court as pertains to marriage in the life of the church. The, yeah. That. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Okay. So anyway, so the Pope gives an annual address to them, and they're often quite controversial. Today he talked about synodality for a while, but then he talked about sort of um, pastoral ministry to those who are in the process of. Um, petitioning for a declaration of nullity. And uh, I, I really uh, found this very kind of cool in a certain way. The Pope says, um, during the process of petitioning for a declaration of nullity, um, he says, uh, the declaration of nullity should not be presented as the only objective to be achieved in the face of a marriage crisis. Um, and when I read that, I thought, oh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I thought that that was going to go in the direction of the tribunal processes by itself, sort of very cathartic and very healing. And yeah. there's a way in which people talk about the tribunal process as a, as a therapeutic process, but sometimes it is, but sometimes it ain't. And so I don't think that's a good expectation. I, I, yeah, like, I don't think anyone should ever hold that as an expectation. When it, when it can this, happen, that's fabulous. But Right. Or as if this, a declaration of nullity is constituted a right regardless of the facts. So a declaration of nullity should not be constituted a right regardless of the facts. In considering the possibility of nullity, um, it is necessary... To, he says, I don't like this translation, but to assist, this translation says to make, but I think it really, it is necessary to, to assist or to help the faithful, to help Catholics reflect on the reasons that move them to request the declaration of nullity and marital consent, thus favoring an attitude of acceptance of the definitive sentence, even if it does not correspond to one's own conviction. Here's what the Pope is saying here. A lot of people come to the tribunal petitioning for annulment and a lot and think, well, I'm petitioning for annulment, I'm going to get it because I'm a Catholic and that's my right. And sometimes their pastors are even like, hey man, we need to fill out this paperwork and get you an annulment so you can get everything squared away. Uh, the Pope says, hey, listen, you can't think about it like that. It's not a right. It's not something that's automatic. And second of all, you need to think about the reason why you're doing this. You're doing this because you love the church. You love the truth. You love being a disciple of, of the church and a disciple of the tr church. And you want to live in accord with truth. And therefore, whatever the outcome is, um, those reasons should be good reasons to accept and live in accord with the reality of the outcome. I thought that was beautiful point which is an important point that it's is a often very always... important point yeah mm -hmm. yeah so it was very um to that end the top user tip for the week the the first rule of pastoral care of individuals or couples going through the canonical process for a possible declaration of marriage nullity is don't schedule anyone's second wedding <laughs> don't do that don't do that guys you laugh don't do that people no, do I'm it all laughing. the time I'm laughing because of my experience of how yeah. ugly that becomes don't do that yeah. don't do okay. that Good. yeah uh -huh. great instead the pope says say hey you're petitioning for this thing because not because you need to get an annulment so that you can 
check this box so you can do the next thing, but because you want to live in accord with the truth. Yeah. This is the kind of catechesis that should come along with this process. You want to live in accord with the truth, and whatever the truth is, that's going to be the way that the Lord is calling you to live so that you can become a saint. Mm-hmm. That's really good pastoral care mm-hmm. of people who are undergoing the difficult process of petitioning for a declaration of nullity. And, and and I see it more and more frequently, thanks be to God, but um, the Pope emphasized it in a way that I thought was cool today. Thank so you, Holy that. Father. That cannot be said often enough. Now, Ed, if the Pope gave his address to the Roman Rota, you know what that means is just around the corner. Um, that means it's the end of January. So every four years, just after the address to the Roman Rota is... Uh, well, Lent starts late this year, so... The start of the Winter Olympics. Ooh, I like the and Winter Olympics. The Winter Olympics start next week, uh, although I'm not sure how much you like them because these are the Winter Oli- the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics, which yeah, this are is bad. terrifically controversial in all kinds of ways because of profound human rights abuses in China, um, which, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in among the Uyghur people and in, in Hong Kong and very many other places as well. Um, as Beijing prepares for the Winter Olympics, even without much of a winter, and Beijing is just making snow out of snowmakers like nobody's business right now. But as Beijing prepares for the Winter Olympics, um, there continue to be all kinds of human rights abuses in China. And one of the things that I found most interesting is that many, many, many national teams have counseled their athletes, don't bring your phone to China. Um, If you must phone when you're in China... Get a burner because um, we ex- we have every reason to believe that the Chinese government is going to hack your phone while you're in China. So this is not this is not your granddaddy's Olympics, as it were. No. Um, but nevertheless, uh, to get ready for the uh, Olympics, I nevertheless, have a- some very important companies paid a lot of money in sponsorship, <laughs> so we're doing this thing. I have prepared uh, two games for you at Winter Olympic trivia and uh, Winter Olympic yes or no. Um, so I, why don't we begin with just a couple of questions of Winter Olympic trivia just to get into the Olympic All right. I, I just want to be absolutely upfront about this. I am unironically, I mean, the fact that it's being held in the, in the worst abuser of human rights, the country is the worst abuser of human rights in the world. And that's absolutely appalling in any country with but any kind of... the problem is you also like the Olympics, right? Right. Any country with yeah. any kind of moral compass or, you know, uh, diplomatic spiritual fortitude would... Boycott the thing. Well, what's happening is places that are really weird places to have the Olympics now because um, everybody knows that the Olympics are a political loser, a money loser, and um, the only reason you do it is if you're trying to demonstrate your global hegemony and all these other things. Yeah, that's why we should only ever have them in Greece. But anyway. Well, you know, I think the idea of only ever having them in Greece and then only ever having them in um, in uh, Switzerland or something is a good and cool idea. Yeah. I, I, yeah, you got to have another – got to have a cold place. Right. Um, like Beijing. God help us. Anyway, but what I wanted to say was, apart from that, I'm unapologetically and unironically enthusiastic about the Winter Olympics. I think the Summer Summer Olympics are, frankly, boring and overblown and full of a bunch of BS sports that I couldn't care less about and most other people couldn't either. But I like the Winter Olympics. I am pro-Winter Olympic. Okay, so I'm going to ask you three Winter Olympic trivia questions. And the reason for three is because before we do Winter Olympic yes or no, you're going to get a chance to earn... Gold, silver, bronze, or nothing. Winter Olympic trivia. Um, I'm getting three questions. You You're getting three questions. I reckon the answer to one, one of them is Chamonix. No, I don't even know what that is. It's oh, okay. okay. Ed, this is the only nation to win medals at the Winter Games, but never at the Summer Games. Um, it's unlikely to be Jamaica. Yeah, because they got the world's fastest man, Usain Bolt. Yeah. 
but they do have a, a, a famous bobsledding team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to say Finland. I'm so very sorry that it's Liechtenstein. Really? Yeah. So you That's cannot cool. win a gold. I'm I'm sorry to tell you that you cannot win a gold. Liechtenstein is the only country in the world to have won medals at the Winter Games, but never at the Summer Games. You um you will not win a gold, Ed, but you can still Good compete for, for that silver. Plucky and little principality. Plucky, well plucky, done. Plucky little principality of Liechtenstein. Yeah. Um. So let's ask now your um your silver medal question, shall we? Please. We're gonna go city here. We're gonna get granular. Um. Uh, no, you know what we're gonna do? You get the country, you get you you get you know you you get the question right. You get the city, you get two points, and that means you could be back in contention for a gold if you do well enough. All right. right, okay. This is the only city and country ever to pull out after being awarded the Winter Olympic Games. Show me Canada. Show me Ottawa. Oh, oh, oh. The 1976 Winter Olympics were originally awarded to Denver, Colorado. Oh. Yeah, but we knew what it would do. We knew it was a bad idea. Coloradans. It would bring a lot of people to the city. Idea. We did not want that. Yeah, um, you got them anyway. It's just they all built houses and moved. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. We got them anyway. Um, but uh, we did not want that then. And so the 76 Olympics, I, where did the 76 Winter Games go? I want to say, uh, say that they went to... Um, to uh, Quebec or something, something like that. not oh, Quebec. No, they, went to, but... they went to Austria. They went to Innsbruck, which I've been to. You've been to Innsbruck? Yeah, I've been to Innsbruck. I am under traveled in Austria. I would like oh. to spend more time in Austria. I well, I spent a lovely semester in Austria twenty years ago. Right now, actually, weirdly. Okay, so uh, you can still though, Ed. Here's what's important: you can still get a bronze, and I think you're going to do it. If you're listening at home with a friend. Now's the time to bet on whether or not Ed is going to win a bronze medal. But I think you're going to do it. And all you have to do is get this question right. Ed, six countries have won medals at every Winter Olympic Games. But only one country has won a gold at every Winter Olympic Games. Which country, Ed, now for you this is for the bronze, but which country, Ed, has taken gold at every Winter Olympic Games? France. I am sorry, Ed. You are leaving Winter Olympics trivia with a participation certificate. No, any self-respecting Olympian will tell you the fact that you got there is the most important thing. (laughs) I'm sorry. If you're interested, the six countries that have won medals at every Winter Olympics game are Austria, Canada, Finland, Norway, Sweden, and the United States. And which one, Ed? Knowing that, do you think is the only country to have won a gold medal at every Winter Olympic Games? USA. Really? Yep. Okay. You want to play a little winter? That that's interesting. <laughs> I okay. Okay. You want to play a little Winter Olympics? Yes or no? Absolutely. Okay. I'm just going to tell you some sports. It's going to probably be yes across the board because the the weirder in the same way that all of the weird and stupid and pointless sports in the Summer Olympics, like the triple jump, drive me crazy. I revel in the weirdness of the Winter Olympic sports. They're great. So, give it to me. Okay, Ed. We're going to start with biathlon. This is the cross-country skiing and then the target shooting? In as much as I can tell by the graphic, I, I'm not claiming to know about these things. I'm just claiming to list them for you, Ed. Yes. Sure. Yeah, hard yes. Okay. Uh, curling. Oh, absolutely. You're a curling man. I love curling. 
I mean, I've never done it myself, although I'm told apparently there's a place not too far away from where I live where you can get curling cl- – and I'm thinking about it. There's like, a place very close to where I live where you can curl. It's the U.S. Olympic Curling Center where uh, the U.S. Olympic curlers train. And you can go there. But it's funny because curling doesn't matter. So at the U.S. Olympic Curling Center, you, I think you can go there for like $5 on your lunchtime and curl – it, you're 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 sliding polished stones across ice with people with brooms. I mean, what? The, it's bonkers, JD, and it's so cool. And the thing is, you can imagine people playing this on a frozen pond. Like, the, yeah, the, basically, totally. this is yeah. a game that was. I I I don't know anything about the history of curling, but I'm just going to assume this is a game that was invented by drunk people in Scotland next to a frozen lake. And like the over the years, the rules just got more and more codified. And like the broom thing, it started Nordic with Nordic combined. We're moving on. Nordic combined. Uh, um, what is Nordic combined? Sorry. Oh, geez, I thought you knew them all. I didn't. I don't know them all. I may like them. I thought all. you knew them all. I, not it's the a names. combination. Of, it's a combination of cross country skiing and ski jumping. Oh, absolutely. Now ski jumping all, all, all alone. Let's say ski jumping all alone. Absolutely. Are you I kidding think me? Ski jumping all alone is so cool. It's awesome. I, I love watching it. I love watching a goofy cartoon about it, and I love watching the real thing, and I think that I would be very good at it. How would you? Because it's standing here's still. here's the thing. If you think that you would be good at that, like, what is the what what is the on-ramp to getting good at that sport? Like, it, at some point, even if kid, you're a halfway you're a decent ski skier, which I used to be, yeah. you know, I could, do, I could do black runs without falling over and things, um, but... Like, at what point is it like, no, I'm ready to try the thing that just fires you off into the air? I don't think you are. I think at a certain point, the coach says uh, to the kid with big knees or something like that, hey, why don't you try this? And you try a little jump, right? I mean, you try the mini ski jump and see how it goes. And then the coach tells your parents, like, boy, the kid has a lot of promise at standing at an angle while he flies through the air. I really think he should dedicate his Either life that to this or school. Your, your kid has a lot of siblings, right? Like, right, exactly. Skeleton. Absolutely. Skeleton is amazing. Yeah, skeleton's super cool. As an Olympic sport, at snowboarding. No. I knew you were going to go, no. Why? Snowboarding's cool. Because they're irritating they the, people. <laughs> no, you remember that girl? She was American. She was super cool. She was young. She was, I bet she wasn't super cool. I bet she was a mall rat stoner. No, she was nice. I, uh, I don't, I don't like them. I don't like J- JD. Every time I've ever been skiing, the people on snowboards ruin it for everyone. Speed skating. Yes. Now, are you a short track or a long track man? Oh, long track. Now, I'm going to tell you something, Ed. I have a good friend who was a long track speed skating Olympian. No kidding. Yeah. Her name was um, her name was Kirsten Holm. So her mom, Diane Holm, I think won like three medals. Um, Kirsten didn't win a medal, but she only went to her first Olympics. And then uh, in Nagano, 98. And then in uh, 2002... Uh, entered religious life and uh, is now sister Catherine CFR. And why Becker. aren't you interviewing your friend, the oh. religious Olympian, for us right now? You know, I hadn't thought about that, but I will uh, do that. Yeah, yeah. I want to. I want to read that. Yeah, actually, I do too. I kind of forgot to do that. That's a good idea. Okay, Ed, do you know what demonstration sports are? No. What are demons? Wait, hang on. Let me guess. Is this like when you are, are they like the the people who stand in the parking lot of major events and like no. do skateboarding tricks and no, that's film like, themselves? No, that's okay because those people are jerks, and I'm not in favor of that. Skaters? Oh, skateboard people are the worst. I no, I cannot. They are all of them sociopaths. Have you ever been, have you ever tried to be in an urban 
park where there are those gangs of not young men. They're all middle-aged How old men. Are you? They are all middle. They're all older than me, JD. At the urban park near my house, there is a skate not park. Not a skate park. I mean an actual park for people to oh, enjoy. Inside the park is a skate park where kids and maybe No, no, no. I'm talking about like a a city center park where there are fountains and flowers and, and a clutch of men in their early 40s who are all I don't think that. I think that's just your nightmare, man. I don't think no, that there are No, I I've seen them. I, I've seen them. I've seen them. What they, is the place? Uh where about where did I see them last? Yeah. Um I forget <laughs> that Where did you see this gang of 40-year-old male skateboarders last? At? Get your little notebook out and tell me where you saw them last. I forget the actual name I of the park, the but park. it's Yeah, my No, I can tell you Canada, where it's the it's and... Love Park. It's basically I forget what the official name of the park is in Philadelphia, Love Park, where they've got the, you know, the Andy Warhol LOV and statue. You go there, you go there to sketch and you get so frustrated to sketch. I go there to evangelize, JD. Huh. Well, you win. You won that one. Yeah, I so did. So you went there one time, and no, not one time. Every so Sunday of Easter, to, you went there to evangelize every Sunday of Easter, and there were people there who it seemed to you needed the gospel. And now it sounds like your principal reaction is that they were terrible. No, those people are terrible because <laughs> they are antisocial. They are. They are back always, to the synod on synodality. Oh, they are honestly. You, JD, demonstration sports were things that used to happen alongside the Olympics, but were not actually part of the Olympic. There was a tournament of a sport, but it would not be an Olympic tournament, qua Olympic tournament. It would be like a local sport or one that was maybe going to get into the Olympics or something like that. And I think they still have it in the summer games, but I don't know if they still have it in the winter games. But demonstration sports, that's what it is. Um, And so one demonstration sport that we're going to talk about is ski joring. Ski joring? Do you know what ski joring is? No. But it was a demonstration sport at San Moritz in 1928. Ski Ed is skiing behind dogs. It means effectively dog. This is downhill do- bobsled racing? No, no cross country. There's no sled and there's no hill. Imagine okay. you're cross country skiing, but you're tethered to a couple of sled dogs. But there's no sled. Let's be clear. There's just you, some harnesses, some skis, and the dogs. That is ski joring. Why is that not a full Olympic sport? I don't know. Actually, the more I describe it, the cooler it is. That's and the amazing. The more I want to like, make my dog do it now. I, I, if we have to suffer through equestrian, we should absolutely have ski joring. Yeah, ski joring. I think. Anyway, it was a, it was a demonstration sport. I don't know why it didn't make it into the Olympics. Now they have something called motorized ski joring, where Euro people are skied are towed behind like. Kind of snow cars and what? It's like fat, but it has it's nothing like the dog ski joring of yore. Okay, I the modern thing you described stupid. The the yep. ski joring as you described it, I want I I want to buy tickets to that. Yeah, me too, me too. And then do you know what? This is going to be your last one. Do you know what ski ballet is? No. Uh, ski ballet. <laughs> be careful here, because my hopes are very high. Ski ballet was a demonstration sport uh, in uh, in 92 in Lillehammer and 88, wherever the 88 Olympics were. I don't remember when I was a kid. Uh, but ski ballet is uh, – I want you to – I want you, Ed, to um, combine figure skating, synchronized swimming, and skiing. Wait. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I, I, that's a lot to hold in my head at once. I'm trying to get some stills that I can merge here. Figure skating, ballet, and skiing. Yeah, so imagine that you have a sort of a 
I believe they do it in a half pipe. If they don't do it in a half pipe, they should. Um, but um, what you have is a two-minute routine choreographed to music, flips, jumps, spins, twists, uh, with one or a pair of skiers. This is this sounds amazing. Yeah, I really want to see this. And the problem is they demonstrated it at the Olympics in 92 and 88. So I'm reticent that we're going to find some YouTubes of it. But I'm going to be looking for the rest. This, this sounds incredible. Do, I'm probably going to be watching. This just shows you how East corrupt Park. and incompetent the International Olympic Committee yes. is. And the International Olympic Committee is probably second only to Major League Baseball in terms of idiocy and corruption in, in senior management positions. But, I mean, this is this sounds amazing. So we didn't talk about Bandy? No, we didn't talk about Bandy. What is Bandy? Uh, Bandy's like a combination of uh, of hockey and soccer. You you uh, you um, or rink ball or ring it. You uh, you you play. It's it's hockey with the ball. But uh, I don't want to talk about pass. We have hockey. We don't need that. <laughs> you know what ringette is? What, what ringette? Yeah, you know. Do you know what ringette is? No, I don't. Ringette's kind of like hockey, but there's no blade on the stick. It, it girls didn't used to be able to play hockey in Canada, and so they invented this game called ringette. What by law? And, well, by custom, I suppose. I, I don't. Maybe by law, I don't know. Oh wait, so uh, is this like netball but for hockey? I, I'd have to know what the first one was to netball know. Netball is okay. So netball is an interesting sport, and it's very common in the UK and in, in other parts of the former Commonwealth. Um, and it's basically a a sort of strange iteration of basketball, but it's exclusively a women and girls sport. Uh, there's no backboard to the net. There's um, you know the the there's no dribbling. Um, if you if you have the ball, you can't move. Um, you play. It, the players play in a very strict zone. And what's funny is the way netball came about is what's the name of the dude in Iowa who invented basketball? James Naismith. I That's think it's it. Massachusetts. Um, well, who's the guy in Iowa who codified the rules? Phineas Fogg or whatever. Uh, anyway, the point the point of it is there was a a woman. Fogg Allen. I think it, any, I don't, it doesn't matter. The point is there was a woman in the UK who had heard of this nascent sport of basketball way back in the days and said, well, this sounds like a, a sport that young women could play that isn't full contact. It, you know, you don't need a huge field. You only need these. Things. And so wrote to him and I think it was Naismith and said, basically, I would like to know how to play the basketballs so that I could use it for my young ladies and got back like a diagram showing like the zones for players. And mm-hmm. it was because oh, it was on top and it was interpreted literally. And so the players play in strict zones and there's no backboard because of course you didn't see the backboard on the net from, you know, an, an overview sketch of a basketball court. You can't see the backboard because it's 2d sketch. It's a very, very weird sport, but it's very competitive. Like there are international tournaments. There is a nat- there are national teams. It's a thing. Oh, that's funny. So Fandangle or whatever it is you're telling me about now sounds Ringette, like netball for hockey. Imagine a rubber ring, a hockey stick without blades, and no contact, and and that, and hockey, and that, you got ringette. Now, interestingly, people who like ringette like to point out that ringette is not a version of ice hockey. And the reason for that is that ringette is actually a version of floor hockey that was then brought to the ice, which is the most pedantic and silly thing because floor hockey is a version of i mean it's just it's very silly i agree with you okay one last one because i just want to learn what this is while we're talking do you know what speed skiing is uh i mean if it's not self-explanatory speed skiing was an olympic uh demonstration sport and in 92 uh boy that 92 92 it was albertville 94 Lillehammer, 94 Lillehammer, 92 Albertville. And the reason for that is because they the Olympics used to be in the same year 
and then uh, they decided that the Winter Olympics were going to be in the off, you know, the the midterm of the of the of the uh, of, of the Summer Olympics, and so they had to have an extra Winter Olympics. So they did ninety two Albertville, ninety four Lillehammer. I don't know if you remember that when we were kids, but you got an extra Olympic out of it. Anyway, speed skating was no, speed skiing was uh, was an exhibition sport there, and speed skiing. Uh, if I'm reading this correctly, which I am because I know how to read, is the sport of skiing downhill in a straight line at a high speed at as high speed as possible as timed over a fixed stretch of ski slope. So basically what's happening here is that you're racing you, against the gun. You're racing against the gun and speed skiers who are who are moving, you know, regularly, these are not record speeds, regularly exceed speeds of 124 miles an hour. I, I want to try that. Do you? Yeah. Huh. I don't like ski jumping seems i know this is going to sound crazy but ski jumping sounds safer to me no i i can't imagine that's true i mean maybe it is true and someone's gonna you know turn around and tell us no because actually most of the because at any given moment in speed think about this in any given moment in speed skiing you have a high probability of breaking your leg at only one moment in uh in ski jumping do you have a high probability of breaking your leg and that's the no, land, but i the feel like you're on a, if, one thing no, right. but if you're on a designated piste for this presumably they've cleared all obstacles and moguls and yeah but what if one little you know pebble gets in the thing or you have an itch or something i mean you're but this is all true of, miles an hour. no I, yeah but i mean i don't know it just sounds it, it, to me it sounds like the sort of extreme high voltage equivalent of just getting a straight patch of road and seeing how fast the car will go you're not you're making crazy turns or anything. You just want to literally see if you can get the car to go that fast. I'd like to try that once. Yeah. <laughs> the skis are uh, the skis are almost eight feet in length and uh, at most four inches wide. I would try this. I would absolutely try this. This sounds like fun. All right. Well, we will do that soon. And uh, assuming that we do not break every bone in our body, ski jumping and speed skiing, listeners, we'll be back next week to talk about. The money in the sacred military order of Malta and other things that have happened. Uh, Ed, good talking with you. Always nice to speak to you, JD. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, JD Flynn. And I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar Co-founder, Ed Condon. God bless you.